We are in Daniel 4 today, and before we actually get in, I just want to share a quick story. Uh, I am a teacher. I teach for Columbus City Schools, and uh, a couple weeks ago, I had my, my student teacher. Why they picked me to teach someone how to teach, I don't know, but uh, my student teacher was um, taking the reins, and I just kind of said, hey, go for it, and he had to give a quiz, and he, he makes this quiz, and it's on Japanese feudalism, and uh, he passes the quiz out to everyone, and everyone's taking it, and he was way nicer than me. Like, when ki- kids would raise their hands and ask a question, he'd kind of, like, point to the answer or something. And uh, one kid turns in his quiz, and he looks at the section, and he's like, hey, uh, you might want to take a, a, a second look at this section. And the kid looks at it, kind of leans back in his chair, pulls his phone back out, and goes, nah, I'm good. And my, my student teacher looks at me, and he's like, no, like seriously, I, I, ma- I made the quiz. I, I wrote this quiz. I would take a s- second look at this. He looks at it again. He goes, nah, I'm confident. And then turns it in. And, <laughs> and I looked at my student teacher and, and we both just kind of laughed. I'm like, just great. It. Like, so he obviously got an F. <laughs> but um, uh, I think that kind of sheds light into where we're going with this chapter. Uh, we are made and created to worship God, and we often tell Him at times, yeah, God, I know you're sovereign, I know you have the answers, but nah, I'm good. I got this. I got this figured out. And it doesn't always lead to the best uh, conclusions. Anyways, we are in Daniel, and the reason we're in Daniel, if you come here when Rob is preaching or, or uh, Michael, we're going to be studying Mark, and we've been going passage by passage through Mark, and we've been doing this since... Uh, we've been meeting here, really. And so every once in a while, when I come up, I'm preaching on Daniel. It's just nice to get a little break and to look at uh, the Old Testament and look at an Old Testament book, a book that is uh, both historical and uh, apocalyptic, so we can see the, the different literature styles uh, within the Bible. Also, Daniel just has a lot of application for a culture that 20, 30 years ago seemed to really embrace the Christian views and the Christian values as just every single day taking a step further and further away from it. We can look at Daniel and, and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and, and these, this first round of Israel um, captives, these exiles, look at how they lived and it can really inform us about how we live in a culture that is separating itself from something that's supported and, and, and Christians lived freely. And ultimately, Daniel is just a book like the Bible, is a book about God. And we can see God's glory and His sovereignty in Daniel. Uh, the main theme that we have uh, kind of identified for Daniel is God is sovereign always. And, and so whether we're threatened by this angry king or we're thrown in a pit of lions or uh, we're put in a fiery furnace or a uh, country overseas is, is unjustly sieging another country, God is still sovereign. So the background, if you are unfamiliar with the Old Testament or, or Daniel or the Israelites, the background of Daniel is God has this set-aside chosen people, the Israelites, and they, are finally, they finally get to enter into this land that was promised to them. And when they enter in, uh, there's this long line of sometimes obedient but mostly disobedient kings and God tells the Israelites through the prophets to repent of their sinfulness and, and turn back to him and they don't and because of this they are taken into captivity by uh, Babylon. Babylon was a massive empire and uh, it's kind of at the height of its power when King Nebuchadnezzar is king and we are 
kind of meeting this first round of exiles that are being taken into Babylon. And in Daniel 1, we explored how Daniel and his friends are no longer the majority. They're, they're told to conform to Babylon, and they don't, and they draw lines. And this informs us uh, as Christians in a, in a nation where we are going to live in increased persecution, how we too can draw lines and, and through that give glory to God. And in Daniel 2, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, which we're, we're going to see again, but he has a dream and it haunts him. And because of Daniel's hope in God and his obedience to God, He's able to give this interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar of what that dream means, and ultimately it brings glory to God. Daniel's faithfulness brings glory to God. Our faithfulness can bring glory to God. And then Daniel 3 kind of continues this narrative of these external pressures and persecution, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told to bow down to this idol. They don't, and so they are then faced with this fiery furnace, but ultimately, Daniel 3 caps with this beautiful picture of Christ stepping into the fire, right? Taking the fire and saving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just like Christ comes, humbles himself, and, and pays this penalty and saves us if our faith is in Christ. And all of this comes to Daniel 4. And, and one of these main characters we see through Daniel 1, 2, and 3 is King Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel 4, we get to see King Nebuchadnezzar in a much different way. So that's what we're going to explore. And the main point that we should see in Daniel 4 is that God should be praised by us. God is worthy of our praise. He is our king and we are made to praise him. Uh, so I'm going to read just a section of Daniel 4. If you have a pew Bible, it is on page 740. Um, if not, we are going to start in uh, verse 27. I'm not going to read the whole chapter today, but we're going to start in 27 and we're just going to read to 34. We're going to pray and then uh, we're going to get into it. Uh, so verse 47 or 27, sorry. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. And just give you a little, little quick background if you're unfamiliar with Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's haunting him. He doesn't know the interpretation of it, and Daniel is able to come in and tell him the interpretation. It's not good for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is going to lose his ability to reason. He's going to be made like a beast, and that's where we're picking up. Daniel has just given this interpretation, has given Nebuchadnezzar this bad news that he's going to lose his kingdom, and uh, this is where we're picking up, just to give you a little context. So again, verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power? as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in his mouth, in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it 
to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. That's where we're going to stop right now. We're going to be reading other pieces throughout this, but let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for just being able to come and and thank you for your grace and your mercy just to to be here on on a Sunday and being able to worship you freely. God, as we take a look at Daniel 4, help us to understand what you say. Help my words to be your words and help me to speak clearly and to dictate what you want us to understand. God, we also pray that for other churches around uh, this area and, and, and really in the world. We pray for the gospel-believing, um, theologically sound churches, that they will be able to shepherd their uh, flock well, that wherever they are gathering, there would be uh, a sense of peace and a sense of reverence and, and worship for you. Um, God, uh, be with us for the next 40 minutes and help us to understand what you want us to understand. We love you, Lord. Amen. So the first point today, the first thing that we're going to look at is why we praise God matters. So the motives as to why we praise God do matter. It's not enough just to say the words or, or, or to, to say, God, you are good. Our, our motives and why we praise Him really does matter. So I know we just read a section, but we're going to jump back to verse 1 and just read verse 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. So when you read that, I think you initially think, if you're familiar with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, the first thought that might jump in your head is, what in the world happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Who is this guy that is writing these things about God? Is this not the same guy who the last chapter was throwing people in a furnace because they were only praising God and now he's writing this? Well, we know what happened, right? We already read it. We, we kind of skipped ahead and, and read what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. But two other questions that kind of pop out to us are, who is Nebuchadnezzar writing to and, and why is he writing this? So Nebuchadnezzar has taken time to, to write this praise to God and, and, and we want to know who and why. And the answers are right there. This isn't some journal that Nebuchadnezzar is writing that he's going to keep to himself or maybe him and his wife will read in the beautiful palace that he, he had just finished constructing. This, this is to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell within the earth. And if you know anything about the Uh, Babylonian Empire, it was, especially Babylon, the city of Babylon, it was this extremely diverse city. All of these ethnicities were mixed in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had this uh, kind of policy where when he would conquer places, they would take the the best, the cream of the crop, 
and indoctrinate them into this Babylonian way of life. And they kind of all merged in Babylon. We see this with Daniel. We see we, he took Daniel from Israel and they, they attempted to indoctrinate him into the Babylonian culture, give him new names and new education, so on and so forth. So just, just by him sharing this with his city, it's going to reach peoples and languages and nations, but it doesn't stop there. Babylon is at the peak uh, of, of its power. It's the most powerful empire in, in the world at this point. And so when the king of the most powerful empire in the world writes something down, people pay attention, and even if you do not live under Babylonian rule. We see this with the President of the United States. When the President of the United States gives his union of address, it's not just the American citizens that are paying attention. It's, it's the whole world. And so what Nebuchadnezzar is doing, he, is, he has gone through this amazing transformation and it, by God's sovereignty and his grace, and he's now sharing this with other people. And This isn't like the main point we're trying to nail down, but we can't ignore that when Christians have a true heart change, when we experience a real true heart change, we share it with people around us. We leverage our position to share it, and, and, and we, ne- we, we don't stop. Nebuchadnezzar is king of the empire, and he's leveraging every ounce of power that God has graciously given him to share about what God has done for him. Well, that second question, why is he writing this? And again, that's pretty clear. He's writing this to praise God, to give glory to God, to tell about what God has done and to praise him. It's not the first time that we've seen Nebuchadnezzar praise God. In Daniel 2, verse 47, I'll I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to, you can. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. This is after Nebuchadnezzar is having another dream that's haunting him, and he, he doesn't know what it means. He's losing sleep, and Daniel is able to interpret it for him. And then the second time we... Here, Nebuchadnezzar praise God is in 328, and he says, uh, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god of their own. And that's when he's referring to uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown in the furnace, and they were, they were saved they weren't touched. There's that fourth figure in the furnace, and he's amazed, and he's like, whoa, <laughs> this God is pretty cool. But both of these times, his motives for praising God, the reason he's praising God is, first, God kind of gets him out of this conundrum, right? He can't sleep. He doesn't know what this dream means. I mean, in, in, in God's eyes, or in Nebuchadnezzar's eyes, God probably seems pretty cool. He thinks he's, man, this God, he's pretty cool. Uh, he, he got him out of this predicament. And, the, and then the second time we see him praise God, he saw him do something amazing. But in both of these instances, he's not praising God for being God. He's not praising God for who God is. He's praising, praising God because of the things God is doing. And, and, and Christians, we often fall into this trap. We praise God for maybe the, the blessings we have received or, or what we see God doing. And we don't praise God for being God. Again, Nebuchadnezzar's eyes, God probably seems cool. I mean, in, in, in Daniel 1, he gets this like cheat code, if you will, for having the strongest people in his empire. Daniel and his friends drink water and eat vegetables, and they come, and they're super wise and super strong. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, man, I like this God, because <laughs> he's doing good things for me. 
And, and then we, we talked about the other two instances. Here's the problem. Nebuchadnezzar's praise that is fueled by gifts never leads to a true heart change. We hear him praise God, but then the very next chapter, we see him persecuting people who are praising God. If we too are praising God for the wrong motives, whatever those motives are, maybe it's gifts, maybe it's how you were raised, maybe it's your political party, whatever motive you have for praising God, if it is not for God's glory and who God is, it's not going to lead to true and lasting worship. Our motives matter. Well, we have to ask the question, why, pray, why praise God? Why praise God in the beginning? If we, we are supposed to offer this true and authentic praise to God because of who He is, why do it? And the answer is, it's what we're made for. We are made to praise God because God is good. So let's look back at the text because I think uh, verses 4 through 9, we're going to read those, talk about them, and then we're also going to read uh, 22 through 25. And I think both of these passages are going to provide, provide some light on the fact that we are indeed made to worship God. So Daniel 4, 4 through 9 is where we'll start. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, and they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no, dif- no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. So again, we're, we're kind of back to that same spot we were in, in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar is having these dreams. He's losing sleep because he doesn't know what they mean. And why does this keep happening to Nebuchadnezzar? Why is this happening for a second time? Well, <laughs> the answer is really, really obvious and clear. God. God is giving him these dreams. God is sovereignly and honestly, mercifully giving him these dreams to, to wake him up. He's letting Daniel come in and, and tell him these things. But how come they're so troubling to him? Well, that's because Nebuchadnezzar is not operating the way he was made. Nebuchadnezzar is not praising God. He is alarmed because he's operating outside of the way that he was created. We are made to worship God, and when we don't, and we worship our sin or other things, when we're confronted by the reality of God, it is uneasy, it's unsettling, it's, it's fearful, it's, it's terrifying, and it should be. When we are worshiping our sin and not God, and we're confronted by that, it should terrify us. And Nebuchadnezzar's feeling the weight of this. See, Nebuchadnezzar has no security. It doesn't matter how powerful and massive and, and great his empire was. And let me tell you, it was, it was a great empire. All his soldiers and his walls and his, his city and the people that love him. And honestly, Nebuchadnezzar was a pretty liked king. He was, he was terrifying at times, but people liked him. None of this offers security to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's feeling this because the, the, the author of it all, 
the <laughs> God who has sovereignly given him all of this, he doesn't submit to. And, and, and deep down, I think he knows that, and he knows it can be all taken away from him. He has no security. He also has no place to go for answers. When, he's being, when he's, he has these visions and these dreams, and they're from God, and God is the only one who can provide this interp- interpretation, but he doesn't subscribe to God, he has no real place to go for answers. In fact, he tries that same old trick that didn't work for him in Daniel 2. He says, hey, get me my magicians and enchanters because that really worked out well. And I'm just imagining what the magicians and enchanters and, and wise people were thinking because last time they couldn't give him the interpretation of the dream and he was like, kill them all. And so now they're walking in and they're like, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no idea, no idea what is going on here. They're probably shaking. But honestly, at this point, again, this is just kind of me reading into it. It seems like a formality to him. It's because when we read this, it's like, at last, Daniel, at last. Like, get these magicians in here. I'll give them their, their due time. Get them out of here. Finally, Daniel, let's get somewhere. And, and he says, right, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who has written this. He says, at last, Daniel came in. So why does, so we see Nebuchadnezzar faced with these dreams and visions, and he's frightened, and then we see Daniel come in, and he always seems to come through. Why? Well, Daniel is operating the way he was made. Daniel is subscribing to the author of it all. He is worshiping and praising God. Daniel has security. He has a purpose. That purpose is to praise and bring glory to God. And Daniel has a place to go for answers. But all of this, all of what we just talked about, doesn't necessarily effectively provide light into the fact that we are made to worship God. These are just benefits. These are, these are benefits of worshiping God. We have answers, right? We, we have answers right here. We can go to the author and creator of everything. That's a good thing for us. That's a benefit for us. We have security. That's a benefit for us. But, but we, I think we too often do this. I do this too often. We just consistently read ourselves. My Bible is upside down. We read ourselves. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we read ourselves into the text. We consistently read ourselves into the text. But here's the thing. The text isn't about us. It's not about Nebuchadnezzar. It's not about Daniel. This is about God. So it's not about the benefits of worshiping God. It is why worship God? And if we look at the interpretation of the dream, I think we'll see that what it says about God will will be clear and in turn it'll kind of clear up why are we made to worship God so let's take a look at this interpretation we'll be in verses uh, 22 through 25 it is you O king who have grown and become strong your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bras in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. 
You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know, right, till you know the most high rules, the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. That is the point of this passage, that Nebuchadnezzar will know. He, he will know that the most high rules. God wants us. He wants Nebuchadnezzar. He wants us to know this because it's what's best for us. We are made to savor and understand God and His glory and His power and His creation and His sovereignty because He is God. That is why we worship Him. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do this. So we are, we are made to worship God. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. And then he is made to be like an animal. He's made to be like this beast. There's, there's a major difference between us and animals. Well, sorry, there's, there's a lot of difference, differences between us and animals, but the, a really major one is, is animals don't acknowledge God for who he is, and, and, and we, because of God's graciousness, can. But when Nebuchadnezzar isn't doing this, he is then made to be like an animal. And this judgment on him is a right and fair judgment. Even the angels attest to this. Matthew Henry puts it this way. God has determined it as a righteous judge and the angels in heaven applaud. Not that the great God needs the counsel or concurrence of the angels, but it denotes the solemn, I struggled with this word, I looked it up a million times, solemnity of this sentence. Even the angels attest that this is a right and fair judgment. And I'm not trying to sit here and say that if we don't worship God for who He is and, and submit to Him, we are going to be turned into the same beast that Nebuchadnezzar is, but we will have judgment occurred on us, and it is going to be eternal. But even before this judgment, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is troubled. And it's this very troubled feeling that attests he is operating outside of the way he was made and that we are made to worship God. We all know, I hope, I hope we are in, in contact with people who aren't Christians and, and we are able to share, to share the gospel with them, but I think we all know uh, people who aren't Christians and, and there's this uneasiness, whether they feel it or not. A lot, there, there's a guy in my school and him and I talk all the time and there's this uneasiness about him because he, he just wants to figure out what's true and he's not sure and he's looking all these different ways and, and he's just kind of uneasy because he doesn't know what's true. I think there are non-Christians for at least a period of time who feel good. They, they, they're maybe so lost in their sin or they go from pleasure to pleasure to pleasure for, for a period of time. They, they feel good, but there's still this uneasiness about them. I, I love uh, nature documentaries. That's like one of my go-to things. I love watching nature documentaries. I'm a social studies teacher, and before breaks, half the time I'm putting like a science like nature documentary on. And uh, not always before breaks either. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, in a nature documentary, there's always that moment where the predator is about to pounce on the prey. Whether the prey knows it or not, that prey's life is in, is in danger, right? It is, it is in danger, and the danger is imminent. So whether we feel this uneasiness like Nebuchadnezzar or we don't, there is danger and it's imminent. So if it's very dangerous to not worship God, not to submit to Him, and we are made to worship God, why do we so often not do it? If you're not a Christian and you're here, 
Why have you not submitted your life to Christ? And if you are a Christian, why do we too many times turn back to our sin? Again, let's go back to the text because I think it's going to provide the best answer for this. Uh, We are in verse 28 now. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar ends up turning back to his sin rather than God. Daniel, we we read earlier, right before we started, Daniel confronts him with his interpretation, and he confronts him with the truth that Nebuchadnezzar is living in sin. And, And let's just look at how... First, let's look at how gracious God is. Nebuchadnezzar is given 12 months to repent. 12 months. Not to mention all the signs and wonders he saw God do in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, and all the times he was confronted with the reality of God in chapter 1, and chapter 2, and chapter 3. And now he's given a whole year to to, to repent. Our God is a very kind and gracious and patient God. And if you're sitting in here and you are not a Christian... Thank God, like, like, thank God that you are here. We should, we should be thankful for that. But please, don't sit and wait like Nebuchadnezzar because the danger in doing that is what ends up happening to Nebuchadnezzar. He sits and he waits and he's kind of faced with this idea of maybe he should repent, maybe he, sh- he shouldn't, and he's kind of just sitting and waiting on it for 12 months. And instead of turning to God, he goes full in on his sin. Full in. Let's just, you don't really need to break down verse 30 very much. It's super clear. Just look at verse 30. It says, And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? He just kind of flounders and he floats, and there's this idea of maybe he should repent, but he doesn't, and then he's just full in lost in his pride, the thing that was separating him from God. And we've got to ask the question, why don't we praise God? And and a better phrasing for Christians is, why, when faced with our sin, do we still often turn back to it? Well, if you look at verse 27 right before it, Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar, take your sin, break from it, like literally break away from your sin and replace it with righteousness. He says, break away from your iniquities and replace it with mercy. And when we float around and we think maybe we should confess, but we don't, and we just kind of sit on it, we're not breaking from our sin and replacing it with something else. First off, we have to acknowledge that the very fact that we are convicted and, and we feel like we should repent is all because of God's sovereign grace in our lives. God sovereignly allows our will to even have that twinge of, of we should repent. But second, we often correct without actually breaking from it. Like I'm an angry person, so I'm, I'm just going to not lash out, but I'm still going to be a very angry person in my heart. I'm a, I'm a lustful person. I'm, I'm just not going to look, but my mind is corrupted by lust. We try to correct, but we don't break. And then when we do break, 
right? I'm, I'm not going to think lustful thoughts. I'm not going to think angry thoughts. We don't replace. We have to replace it with something else. And that's the truth that we find in the Bible. The world is going to lie to us every single day. We have to replace it with truth every single day. I'm not saying there's this like four-step solution to becoming a Christian. What I am saying is I think breaking it down helps. So just kind of four things here. We need to acknowledge our sin and we need to acknowledge the damage that does uh, to the relationship we have with God. Acknowledge that it is our fault. Acknowledge that we need to repent and confess our sin. We need to pray for His Spirit, right? We've, we've broken from His sin. Now let's pray and ask God for, for grace to, to continue this breaking from our sin and, and replacing it. Spend time in the Word. And then this fourth one's really, really important. And we can't just stop at surround yourself with community. It needs to be community that is going to hold you accountable. If our discipleship relationships and our small groups and, and our time with other Christians have turned into just a time to hang or a time to gossip and there's no accountability happening, then that is no longer a discipling relationship. It's just hanging out with your friends, which is good. It's good to hang out with your friends, but there has to be accountability within the community that you have. And when we don't do this, we end up like Nebuchadnezzar. We turn back to our sin and we just go full in embracing it. That's why we live in such a lost country and such a lost world because everyone has been confronted with the fact no one is without excuse. But when we ignore it and we don't repent and we ignore God's sovereign grace in our life, we just kind of go all in. I mean, look at America right now. We're all in on sin. This whole section made me think of this song that I used to listen to. Well, not used to, I still listen to it. Uh, there's this Christian rapper named Tadashi. I'm not going to like do the song, <laughs> but I'll tell you what it's called. It's called Make War, right? This song is Make War, and it's based off a really famous uh, John Piper sermon. He has like ex- excerpts of John Piper in the song, and it's, it's one, of, one of the quotes he pulls out from John Piper is, it's probably famous, you've probably, probably heard of it, it is famous, but it's, I hear so many Christians murmuring about their imperfections and their failures and their addictions and their shortcomings, and I see so little war. Murmur, 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 why am I this way? Make war. We need to make war against our sin. If you're not a Christian, turn to God. If you are a Christian, make war against your sin. We cannot use... I think a temptation is to take our good theology, right, our right and good theology, and have a bad interpretation of it, which can lead to laziness, right? We, we believe that God is sovereign, and even our will to act is from God. And the temptation, or a poor understanding of that is, okay, I'm just going to sit around and wait until I really, really want to, and that's going to be God working in my heart, but I, I, I like kind of want to, but I don't want to, so i got to wait for God to change my heart, and I'm not going to act, I'm not going to fight. That's a really poor interpretation of good theology. It is good theology to understand that God is the one who provides the will in your heart to work, but if you even have like the littlest ounce of will to pick up the, the armor of God and fight against your sin, do it. Fight as hard as you can, but as you're fighting, understand that the only reason you can fight is because of God's sovereign grace. We cannot let our theology create laziness because ultimately it's not good theology then. It's bad theology.
And when we don't do this, we see in verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers and his nails were like bird claws. If you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, but you're praising your sin instead of God, there are dire consequences. Again, I'm not saying that we're all going to be turned into these beasts like Nebuchadnezzar, but we will have this eternal punishment that is indefinite. One day the punishment's indefinite. We won't be able to look up like Nebuchadnezzar did and repent. There are dire consequences to praising your sin rather than praising God. And why do we praise God? Well, we're made to. And guys, God is our king. And he deserves the praise. Let's read the rest of the chapter here. Uh, 34 through 37. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion, and ever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Listen, in human terms, Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most powerful people that, that existed. He had an entire nation that beckoned at his every will. And yet, what happens to him? He's turned into a beast. He is knocked off his pedestal. His kingdom is taken from him. But look at the things he says about God when it's restored. This powerful mighty king says God's kingdom endures from generation to generation the inhabitants to the earth are accounted as nothing he does his will none can stay his hand his works are right and just Nebuchadnezzar's power came from God it was taken by God and it was given back by God and how do we know this well, Nebuchadnezzar himself is telling us and guys this is the same for every leader in history and now. Every politician that's in power, every president or dictator or whatever it is of every country is, is given that power by God. It is really easy to look at our current world situation and live fearfully, to live in fear. But we are not called to live in fear because we know who gives the power. Listen, there's not a chapter in Daniel about politically using your right to vote to get God's commands as part of our country because he didn't have that opportunity. I'm not saying don't fight and vote for God's good commands and laws. Please do that. Daniel just didn't have that power. He didn't have that chance. He, it wasn't something that was given to him in Nebuchadnezzar's. He couldn't vote. He couldn't try to change the laws. It was all up to Nebuchadnezzar. 
at least the way we can, like, right? Do that. Please vote for God's good and, and righteous commands, but do not be controlled by the outcomes. Our king isn't Putin or Biden or Trump or any leader that we like or dislike. Our king is God, and even Nebuchadnezzar ends up acknowledging this. And then guess what? The most, <laughs> I don't know, awesome is, I, I hang out with eighth graders every day, so it's just how I talk. <laughs> um, the most awesome, <laughs> the most awesome thing is verse 37. His works are right and his ways are just. We have a king and our king is good. If you're not a Christian, there's a lot more to this story that ends up unfolding in the next like four to 600 years. I can't remember. I didn't write it down. I think it's like 400 years. Our God, our king is going to humble himself and send his son to suffer and die on a cross to pay this penalty, to pay for our sin. And then he's going to be raised again so then we can have righteousness credited to us. So we don't have to face this indefinite punishment. So we don't have to be made like an animal or made like a beast. We have a king who humbled himself and paid this penalty. Please, if you are not a Christian, put your faith in Christ. And if you are, continuously look back to Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are our king. God, we are so thankful that we are made to praise you because that is good for us. God, help us to live in ways where we, our praise is so evident that the people that we work with or the people that we're in contact with see this and can see your glory. And God, thank you that you are not just our powerful king, but you are our just and good and patient and merciful and fair, powerful king. Lord, help us to submit to your kingship. Help us to offer true praise to you because you and only you are worthy of it. Amen.